Hello and welcome to CotyCast, the podcast for debate, discussion and analysis of issues related to geriatrics and general medicine. And today we're doing a post-conference um, CotyCast, so after G4J 2018, which we've just finished in London this evening. Yeah. Yeah, and who's, who's here today? I'm Emma, I'm one of the, the Amy crew and... And I'm Nick, I'm one of the Amy team. And I'm Vicky. And I'm Chris. Yeah, so we thought today, for people who couldn't come to the conference, we would just give you our top tips that we learnt. So just keep a nice short code to cast about what we've learnt. So who wants to kick us off today? Uh, I'll go first if you want. So uh, Claire McDonald, who always gives great talks on Parkinson's disease, she spoke last year and she spoke this year again, has got some great videos. Um, so she came up with the scenario of the patient who's nil by mouth. Um, and um, gave some really good advice about pe- Parkinson's patients who are nil by mouth. Rule number one is that we should be trying to get as best as possible a salt assessment for these people. doesn't necessarily have to be a speech and language therapist out of hours. could be a, um, uh, a stroke specialist nurse or something like that who's qualified to do um, ward-based swallow assessments. Um, then the, if, that, if you're um, not able to get that overnight and you have to... Um, uh, and they ha- are strictly nil by mouth and you can't get an NG tube into them, then the other alternative is um, uh, a reticotine patch. And there's a really good website called pdmedcalc.co.uk and we'll put that at the end of the, uh, uh, on the notes at the end of the CodyCast, um, a link to that. And that's a really useful tool where you type in what um, medications that their uh, patient is taking and what dose of reticotine patch you should be going for. Now, um, just a little addition to that is that if they suggest going above four milligrams, maybe you should just start at two milligrams or four milligrams of a reticotine patch and then get the Parkinson's team to see them straight away. So really good advice. Yeah, that was really good, wasn't it? And that was that because um, reticotine can make, uh, make patients acutely de- delirious? Yes, yeah, there's a high risk of delirium with reticotine and um, sometimes the, the doses of... Um, in the frail elderly patients, sometimes the doses of reticotine are perhaps um, calculated to be too high, so just start a little bit lower in our frail elderly mm. patients. Yeah, that was really good. Um, so I really enjoyed the polypharmacy, polypharmacy the musical, uh, that Dr James Fisher, um, who was one of the original founding members of AMI, did. And I took away some great kind of practical tips from that. So as you were saying about the reticotine patch, go slow, go look... Start. What what did I what did I learn? Start low and go slow, which is particularly with things like analgesia in the elderly. And another great tip I thought, because um, he was looking at polypharmacy, was when you clerk somebody in uh, to hospital and you're looking at their drug list and you're looking at their past medical history, draw a line between their medical condition and the medication that that's indicated for. And then if you have some medications at the end that you're not sure either we've missed a diagnosis yep. somewhere or actually maybe they had a problem in the past and they've just been left on those medications uh, kind of indefinitely. So I thought that was really good. And and also interestingly because although it's about polypharmacy, he also kind of raised the point, you know, if someone's on AF and you see they're on a beta blocker, you kind of draw a line. But it's also a good way of highlighting under treatment. So if that person wasn't an anticoagulant, that kind of picks, flags that up to you and you start thinking, well, why are they not? And you can look into that to make sure that it was a conscious decision and not kind of overlooked. And I think the third thing I took away from that is, especially as junior doctors, 
and someone's delirious or um, actually if, if someone's kind of having trouble sleeping in hospital at night um, and you get asked can you prescribe some PRN Zopiclone um, that there's good evidence that actually benzodiazepines do increase falls risks um, and aren't are harmful so actually there's some good evidence that kind of backs you up about why you might not prescribe that and why to kind of start with non-pharmacological methods first. So I thought he had really good tips, really good practical tips. Absolutely, yeah. So I, um, I, I really enjoyed Nigel Stout's talk. So he tweets at at um, and he specialises in dizziness, vertigo and syncope. And I find dizziness one really difficult thing to grasp. And I always feel like I know it after I go to these talks and then it just goes out of my head in an hour or so. So one of the things he talked about, which will be easy to refer back to in the future um, when examining the dizzy patient, is the HINTS exam. Um, so this is a screening tool for distinguishing the central cause of vertigo from an acute peripheral vestibulopathy, such as BPPV or vestibular neuritis. Um, and this is really important, obviously, because a neurological exam on its own can't distinguish the two, and we end up doing a lot of CT heads. So this test com well, this comprises of three tests, um, and the hints gives you a clue. So the first one is H, it's head impulse. Um, and this is actually um, moving the patient's head in a certain direction. I'll let you look it up. Um, but it's basically positive, which is consistent with peripheral vertigo if there is a significant lag with correct saccades. Um, the second uh, test is nystagmus. So we all know about nystagmus, but it's about the direction of it. So if it's bi-directional nystagmus, so the fast component to the right when they look right and the fast component to the left when they look left, that's more concerning for a central brain process going on. Um, and the third thing is skew. So this is having the patient maintain his or her gaze on your nose, um, and then you alternate covering each of the patient's eyes. And a positive result um, is basically um, when the eye sort of bobs up and down um, while it's being covered and then corrects after you uncover it. So you see this like sort of weird looking bouncing up and down eye. Um, and if you have all of these things, that's consistent with the diagnosis of peripheral vertigo. Um, and that's 100% sensitive and 96% specific. So it's a really helpful exam to do um, just on the bedside. So I thought if, even if I don't remember the components, if I remember hints, then I'll take something away from that. I think that was really good. I always look that up because the one thing that is so worrying when someone comes in dizzy and you think, am I going to miss a stroke? And that's what you're worried about, isn't it? Yeah, it's a good it's a good way to have you decide whether to get an urgent scan or not. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I think <clears throat> what I would take away from it, I was lucky to be on the poster judging panel, um, and we had some absolutely fantastic posters that were submitted this year. Um, the winner of the K Granger Prize um, for the best poster was um, a really interesting project that had been done at the Royal Free um, and they were looking at using simulation uh, within education to try and help people um, establish and initiate um, advanced care planning um, conversations. And I think advanced care planning is something that generally is not done well. Um, it is starting to gain a little bit more momentum, but uh, you know it is still done spectacularly poorly in a wide variety of settings. And I've got a bit of a background in medical education simulation, and we would usually use simulation for trying to teach technical skills, such as dealing with an arrest or a critically ill patient, for example. But actually, this project showed that simulation can be used to 
um, try and teach more non-technical skills and conversations about communication and how we broach very difficult issues that are very common within geriatrics. Um, and I thought that this project really highlighted that actually, you know, using either actors or other people playing a role to try and simulate what it's like having these conversations with people can be a really useful educational tool. And I think if people are thinking about wanting to pursue um, um, either a career in medical education or trying to take a year to do some medical education, um, the concept of using simulation for communication skills and difficult topics like this I think is something that we really should use going forward because I think it's tremendously valuable. People find it uh, very useful in the data so that the team at the Royal Free um, produced showed that it was highly effective. So I think that was the big thing that I took away from it. I think that's really interesting because at medical school you'll practice taking blood, you'll practice cannulation before you go from the ward and do it on real people. But you know we don't practice having these really complicated, difficult conversations mm -hmm. before we are expected to do it with families and patients. Yeah. So I think people find it tremendously awkward, and particularly performing in front of your peers is something that people just absolutely shrink away yeah. from. Yeah. And I think the, the real benefit is after even one year, six months experience doing the job, spending a bit of time getting some experience in these kinds of issues, it often then becomes a lot more useful when you can relate it to previous experiences. So I think certainly for F1s and F2s, it's something that they can definitely build on. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, as usual, our Kota Casa are available on the website, uh, www.amy.org.uk or on Coticast. Um, and uh, we've got our Twitter handle, which is at ElderlyMedEd. But we just want to say thank you to everybody who came to G4J London 2018. It was really great to see people yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And um, obviously, for those of you that couldn't make it, there's lots of hash, uh, hashtags and tweets on our Twitter with all the kind of some slides and um, some kind of useful links. Um, we'll be having G4J Connect events around the country, but our next big kind of annual event is 2019 in Manchester, so yeah. it'd be great to yeah. see as many people as we can Absolutely. there. Absolutely, yeah, Indeed. looking forward to it. Yeah, so thank you so much everyone. Yeah, thank great, you. thank you. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.